what I learned was that happiness is not a destination, right? Like we don't arrive at happiness train station and we say, yes, I'm here, I'm here forever. I think it's more like a bit of a continuum and some days we are really happy, other days we might feel lethargic, crap, rather than shying away from those negative emotions, it's more just about accepting them and acknowledging them. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Ten years ago, Churia Pitt was competing in a 100-kilometre ultramarathon in Western Australia's Kimberley region when she was caught by a grass fire. Suffering burns to two-thirds of her body and having to wait hours for medical assistance, she wasn't expected to survive. But Churia managed to not only get medical at attention, but also then to go on and create an extraordinarily inspiring life. Uh, she's competed in two Ironman triathlons, including Kona. Uh, she's a motivational speaker uh, and a writer uh, of four books, most recently, Happy and Other Ridiculous Aspirations. Uh, she's an extraordinary example of how the issues which we might sometimes think uh, would turn our lives upside down uh, can end up being used to create a stronger and a, and a deeper self, uh, to essentially draw out the bits of ourselves which, but for adversity, we mightn't have found there. Uh, it's, she's somebody who I've been wanting to have on the podcast for so long, and I'm really delighted to have today's conversation with Turia Pitt. Turia, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. Yeah, how are you going? Thanks for having me. Wonderfully well. Now, the, um, the fire is... Um, a decade ago this, this September, and uh, I, I'm sure you uh, have told the story of it many times, uh, how, how, do you, how do you look back on that experience now? Uh, do, is it still vivid in your, in your mind? No, I don't think it's vivid. I think it's like any traumatic experience that we might go through. So whether that's losing someone we love to cancer, witnessing a car crash, um, any kind of traumatic event we have, we might not necessarily think about it in a day-to-day -day context, but potentially there might be things that remind us of that day or that time in our lives. Um, much like, you know, when you smell an ex's perfume and it brings back memories of that ex? So I think, <laughs> yeah. So I, I think it's just how our brains work and how, how our memory works as well. So I don't spend like all day, every day, minute by minute, obsessing about this one event in my whole entire life but you know we had really horrific bushfires on the south coast which is where I live uh, not the summer just past but the summer before and obviously being someone who had survived being burnt by a bushfire I found that incident obviously quite triggering and upsetting and I think Andrew what I've always been really good at doing is shifting my focus or, or shifting my energy because I think you know we, we only have so much time and energy attention and focus 
And we can choose to give airtime to traumatic events in our lives or worrying about what's gone wrong in our day or what's not working for us or what people haven't done for us. Or we can choose to try and redirect that energy in, in focus into something positive. And so that's why with the bushfires, um, one of my mates and I, we started up something called Spend With Them. I don't know if you ever heard of it, Andrew, but it was, yes, yeah, it's basically just an Instagram campaign where we profiled businesses from fire-affected communities and people all over Australia and all over the world could find out about that business, spend something with that business, support that local economy and help boost town morale all at the same time. And that that little campaign took off like wildfire. I think within a couple of days, we had close to 200,000 followers. We got a shout out from um, Kelly Rowland of Destiny's Child. And so that exercise for me was, it was a real, I guess, demonstration of how important it is for us to be able to shift our energy and shift our focus, particularly in times of stress or fear or anxiety. And being burned is such a, a traumatic thing. I remember a mate of mine from school uh, had a, an incident in the kitchen where boiling oil went over his feet and he spent about a month in hospital. And he said after that he couldn't watch... Uh, action movies the same way. He, he said he just he'd never realised before the injury how many people in action movies get burned, uh, and how these movies just gloss over the, the the agony that's involved in in being burned. As you know, those of us who've had tiny little burns uh, can only imagine. Oh. And you were placed in a coma for for a month before uh, d during your uh, your recovery. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and how, uh, did, did, uh, what were the, the biggest effects on your, uh, on your body apart from the, uh, the skin grafts? Yeah, well, I think, so I got burned to 65% of my body. I had uh, seven of my fingers amputated. I think one of the big challenges I faced with my burns is that what a lot of people don't know is that your skin plays a massive role in regulating your body temperature. So for you, Andrew, I know you're a keen runner, I'm a keen runner too, but when you go for a run, you probably sweat, which has the effect of cooling down your body, yeah? But my burnt skin doesn't do that, so it doesn't sweat. And then if you're cold, you'll get little goosebumps, which will trap hair, um, air between your little hairs, and that will help warm you up. So my, my burnt skin does neither one of those things. So for me, being an endurance athlete and, you know, doing things like Kona and uh, the Kathmandu, you know, coast-to-coast -coast race, uh, that was a real, really big challenge for me in, in the fact that I wasn't able to regulate my body temperature. Yeah, I did my first Ironman on Sunday and uh, was, was thinking partway through as I was sweating away what it must have been like for you doing those two Ironman triathlons, having to cool yourself down externally, just a huge amount of, uh, of effort. And, and that must affect you on a day-to-day -day basis too, I imagine. I don't think so, so much on a day-to-day basis, right? Because like, well, I don't live somewhere really warm. I live on the south coast of New South Wales. So the, the temperature here is quite is quite mild um i'm a surfer so i might get a bit cold in the water sometimes but i don't really notice it day to day it's more when i'm doing endurance events or doing like long distance running but you know that's the sort of stuff that i'll talk about 
in my program, you know, Run With Cheria. Yeah, so we'll, uh, let, let's come to the run program in, uh, in ju just a moment. Um, you moved from being a, a pretty hardcore runner. I mean, a 100K race is, uh, is extraordinary. Then on to doing the, uh, the Ironman triathlon events in 2016. Uh, what was it that made you want to do something as, uh, as, as, as big as an Ironman after such a horrendous accident? I think, Andrew, it was because... I felt like I wanted to prove to myself that I was not only just as fit as I was in the ultra marathon where I was catastrophically injured, but that I was fitter. I think that for me was a massive motivation. And I think as well, we talked about it a little bit earlier on, but it kind of changed my focus, you know, rather than obsessing about this, uh, for want of a better word, calamity that I'd come across. I was putting my energy and my time and my dedication in towards training for an Ironman. So I think those two reasons is probably why, yeah, why I was so committed to doing one. And then with uh, Kona, which is Ironman World Championships, I got invited to do that one. And as you would know, Andrew, like when a massive opportunity like that, um, you know, when, when that door opens, I felt like I wanted to just challenge myself that little bit more and, and test myself that little bit more and go and do that. But I found, I found Ironman Kona really difficult, like a lot more difficult than the Ironman in Australia, and I think that was because of the heat. Which is more painful, doing Kona or giving birth? Uh, I don't know. Like, yeah, I don't know. I think they're different. I'd probably say giving birth. Uh, yeah, I don't know, though. <laughs> the fact that uh, you had to think about the question, I think, uh, says, says something about what you went through there. Um, and your, your run program now, I mean, you're uh, an extraordinary inspiration after all you've, you've gone through. How do you start people off on the journey to running? Yeah, well, I guess I created this program a bit selfishly, right, because it's something that I wanted for myself after I had my two sons. I wanted a place you know, where I had a training program and I was accountable, but a community of people who really got what it was like to be a mum and, and to want to prioritise my family. And I also wanted to learn how to make time for myself because for me, Andrew, running is my me time. And I know that if I just get out the door for, you know, even if it's just a 20-minute run, I will come back to my house feeling happier and more energised and more productive and then that in turn makes me a better mom and a better friend and a better partner and a better boss. So I think that's that that's part of the reason why I created it. And it's a virtual running program. It's a 10-week running program. We finished the last round a couple of weeks ago. We took women who had literally never run before and taught them to run five kilometers. So I think it's really amazing to see, I guess, to see what we are all capable of. And you've got uh, three distances, five kilometres, 10 kilometres and 21 kilometres. For someone who's just on the very start of their journey, um, how, do you, how do you build them up into five kilometres? I know the, the run-walk programs have uh, had some success, couch to 5K. Is that, is that the kind of, uh, kind of approach you take? No, we don't use a run-walk method. Um, oh, okay. I, yeah, I know, I know some programs use a run-walk method. 
Uh, in our program, we're teaching people how to run. So we want them to be running. But I think a crucial part of that is, I think a lot of people assume that when you're running, you're doing like a hard Usain Bolt sprint, you know? Um, and so most people might find that they can run like that for 10, 20 meters, and then they have to stop because they, you know, it's not possible to sustain that fast pace for a really long time. So we teach that you can go as slow as you want. A walker can overtake you. A toddler can overtake you. It doesn't matter. You have to leave your ego at the door just as long as you are running. And I think the key thing is because the movement patterns of running are very different to the movement patterns of walking. And if you're in the program to learn how to run, then that's what you'll be doing. So, but yeah, it's really amazing because women who have literally never run before, haven't been doing um, exercise consistently, uh, join the program and in just 10 weeks we've, you know, they're running five kilometres. So it's, it's bloody amazing. And you've had uh, two uh, two children, one born in 2017, one in 2020. Um, how have you managed to uh, fit your exercise regimes around your sons? Uh, what have you learned about uh, combining uh, being a parent and uh, being an athlete? Yeah, and you know what? It's, it's really hard, Andrew. But I think what I've learned is that, number one, being a mum has made me so much more efficient. I think before I had kids, like sometimes it would take me maybe 40 minutes to get out the door to start my training session because I would have to have the shoes, matching sports bra, my favourite cap, my playlist on Spotify <laughs> queued, then I had to charge my phone, then I took a phone call. And now if I've got like a half an hour window, I'm like, I'm gone, I'm out the door, I'm doing my run. So being a mum has 100% made me way more, way more efficient. But I think what I've learned as well is that if you wait for everything in your life to be perfect, if you wait for, you know, dinner to be cooked and the laundry to be done and all the emails answered, um, you'll never actually find that time in your day to do something for yourself. So I feel like if I just go for a run, leave the chaos of my household behind, I know that when I come home, I'm going to be in a really good mood, I'm going to be happy, I'm going to be energized, and I'm going to be more productive. And I think that element or that aspect of showing yourself a little bit of self-care to help yourself be a better mum and a better, better parent, um, I don't think that can be underestimated. Yeah, I remember uh, one of the things that helped me a lot was having Rob DiCostello on the podcast and asking him how he felt about training sessions when he was uh, in the, the, the thick of his hard training when he uh, held the, uh, the world record for the marathon. I said, did you mostly look forward to training sessions? He said, no, no, normally uh, uh, normally didn't look forward to them very very much. Sometimes I really hated them. And thinking that, you know, even an athlete like that who's right at the top of his game might uh, might, might not feel like pulling on the sneakers some days uh, made me think, oh, well, that's, uh, that's uh, you should just pull on the sneakers when you're feeling that way. Yeah, totally. And I think, again, that's something that most people assume, right, that if they have a bit of a crap, training session or a bit of a crap week they berate themselves they beat themselves up they're really down on themselves but I think it's just acknowledging that that's part of the process that you know for yourself Andrew training for that Ironman I'm sure there's a lot of training sessions in there that you didn't want to do that you hated at the time that felt like just a slog and were completely mediocre um, but you just kept showing up right and that's why you were able to do the Ironman on the weekend. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's uh, as with so many things, so much of life is just uh, just showing up. 
your uh, your new book, Happy, talks about uh, a, a whole range of, uh, of aspects of, of happiness. But one that I'm really fascinated by is this notion that uh, most of what determines our happiness uh, actually might not be the uh, things that come along during our lives, but might be our upbringing and our genetics, and that we may just have a kind of happiness set point that's basically there by the time where uh, we enter adulthood and, and stays pretty constant. You see this a little bit with lottery winners whose happiness goes up but then returns to just about where it was before. Uh, but in your case also, uh, you know, you're, you're somebody that's uh, uh, suffered uh, a, a terrible injury and yet, if anything, you seem like you might be happier now than before the injury. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's that I'm happier now. I think I am more potentially grateful for the people in my life and the relationships I have with my partner and my family and, and my beautiful boys. I guess I know um, that life is really precious and that it's short and that we don't get a second chance at it. I think the, I think the bit of research you're referring to was, was conducted by one of the world's, you know, really prominent researchers on happiness, Sonia Leibomirsky, and she found out that uh, 50% of our happiness is determined by our genes, um, but only 10% by our life circumstances, so that's winning the lottery or getting a limb amputated, but 40% is determined by our behaviour. So things like practising gratitude, doing a good deed for someone else, um, really investing and working on your personal relationships, all of those are, are different behaviours, right, that can improve our happiness levels. So I think if if that's a goal that, that you want to pursue or that, you know, of, that your listeners want to pursue to be happier, there's lots of different things that they can do to help themselves to get happier. Um, you know, I'm not – I think from writing the book – what I learned was that happiness is not a destination, right? Like we don't arrive at happiness train station and we say, yes, I'm here, I'm here forever. I think it's more like a bit of a continuum and some days we are really happy, other days we might feel lethargic, crap, uh, dispirited, demoralized. We might feel energetic one day and joyful the next day. And I think rather than shying away from those negative emotions it's more just about accepting them and acknowledging them and and allowing them to be in your life as as counterintuitive as I know that might sound to the idea of happiness yeah I mean I think Sonia's numbers have got to be wrong but uh still that doesn't <laughs> take away from the the notion of the uh, of, of the set point uh and uh oh do you want me to explain why Sonia's numbers are wrong yeah uh, tell me I'm interested I'm interested oh so if you look at the uh, the stuff on cross-national happiness, there's just massive differences. So in the poorest countries in the world, on a scale of 1 to 10, people are sitting at around a 4, and in the richest countries, they're sitting at about a 9. So... Uh, that can't be that can't be genetics. That's got to be circumstances. Right. Growing okay. Up in, grow, grow, growing up in abject poverty, I think, very clearly makes you less happy. So I, I don't buy at all that it could be half genetics. Um, I think there's a lot of the country, a lot to do with the country you're born into, and the position in in that country where you where where you're born. But all of that's outside our control, right? So in some sense, that might as well be genetics because you've got as much control over your country of birth as, as you do over who your parents are. Um, so what we want to focus on is the stuff we can change. And, and I'm really fascinated by uh, your 
gratitude exercises. And you want some really practical stuff in happy and other ridiculous aspirations where you talk about the, the process of uh, uh, doing gratitude diaries. Uh, tell me about how, how you do that. Yeah, I mean, I think gratitude as its essence is really just amplifying the good in your life already. Uh, you know, we, we've got a negative bias in our brain. It's wired to take more note of the negative stuff that happens than the positive stuff. That might be why when we wake up, we think about uh, the emails that we haven't sent or a team member was supposed to do a certain project that they haven't done yet. I guess that's not the most inspiring way to start our days off. So I guess if you start your day thinking about, well, what is it that I'm grateful for? Who in my life am I grateful for? What's something really good that I can do for myself today? I think that's more of a grateful and potentially energizing way to start your day off. So what does this mean in practical terms? Do you actually have a little notebook? Where you no, I don't have a notebook. I don't, I don't have a notebook. I get up, I make my coffee. Uh, I don't look at my phone because I think when you look at your phone first thing in the morning, you're sucked into a, you know, a digital vortex of what other people want from you or the emails you haven't seen, all of that stuff. So I don't pick up my phone. I have my coffee. I sit with my boys on the carpet and I just start thinking about um, – the things that I'm grateful for in my life. So I might be grateful uh, for my beautiful kids. I might be grateful for my mum who's come over today so I could do this interview with you, Andrew. I might be grateful. Uh... Thanks, Therese, mum. <laughs> and then I'll think to myself, well, what's going to make today really good? Like maybe what would make today good is if I run to my kid's preschool um, and pick him up after school. Or maybe what would make today good is if I catch up with a girlfriend for a coffee and just – I guess setting up my day in that way, it changes the tone and the feeling I have for my day ahead. Uh, so how long is it before you first look at your phone? How, how long do you manage to maintain that sort of cocoon from electronic distractions? Yeah, well, probably about an hour. But I'm getting up at, at an early time because of my kids. Well, you probably get up early as well. but What time's that? I got up at five. Is that normal normal for you? Yeah, I think so with the kids, yeah, yeah. I don't Have I, you always been a morning person? Yeah, I have, so it's not it's not overly onerous, but I also go to bed really early too. How, so how much uh, sleep do you get? I reckon I would get maybe 8 hours of sleep a night. That is impressive for somebody who's got uh, two kids under 5. I mean, that's well, probably but that's more prob- than, that's than the inter- yeah, that's inter- yeah, that's interrupted sleep. Do you find that sleep's pretty important to your, your happiness? Yeah, I think so. Like we all know if we wake up after having a bad sleep, we're probably in a bad mood. But if we've had a good sleep, we feel, again, more energised and happier and, and ready for our day ahead. And so one of the other things you talk about is the importance of saying no. To happiness. Tell us about that one. Yeah, I guess it wasn't so much about saying no to happiness, but you know, I'm it, sorry, say, say, saying no to uh, th- things you shouldn't be doing as a route to happiness. Yeah. Um, so I think what a lot of us are probably guilty of, and, and you know, I'm going to include myself in that as well, is saying yes to a lot of things that might not necessarily align with what it is that we want for ourselves and for our lives. So I think that that trick of saying no 
can be really helpful. There's lots of different ways that we can learn to say no. Um, I think the most important one I could give is not to not to dally, right? Like if you know you can't commit to something, just be straight, just say, no, I can't do it. It, it doesn't work for me. I think if you have a reason for saying no, like go ahead, feel free to sh- share it because I think research shows that giving a reason provides context for the person asking um, and makes it more likely for the person asking to be okay with the no. Um, you can offer an alternative if that would better suit you. And finally, I, I would urge people to consider the two-day rule because often I'll say yes to things because I think it's ages away and I don't know if you're guilty of this too, Andrew. And then it comes up and I'm like, oh, I've got to do this bloody thing in, in two days' time. So I think just before you say yes to something, consider if you would say yes if it was just two days away. Yes, I, so I use that both ways. First of all, I imagine that the event is tomorrow rather than in six months' time. Uh, and the other way in which I use it is when I'm inviting somebody to an event where I'm not sure they're, they're likely to say yes, I try and ask them as far in advance as possible uh, in order to maximise the chances that they'll make that mistake and agree to something that they might not have agreed to if I waited too long to ask them. Sneaky, but I like it. It's an, <laughs> an effective strategy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you uh, you talk in, in the book about um, the impact on you of, of losing uh, a friend of yours, uh, Martin van der Merwe, who was one of the surviving runners from the Kimberley grass, grass fire. Uh, what impact did that have on your life and how you thought about the world? I think at the time, um, so Martin and I were never very close, but we did go through something catastrophic and, and crazy together so I think when I received that news I was still quite quite heavily in my recovery um, and having a lot of operations and surgeries and things like that but I think that just reaffirmed to me that life's short it's precious and we only really get you know we only really get one shot at it. Were there things that you then embarked on doing as a result of that? I don't think so. I don't that made you open up to to doing doing the triathlons no I don't think specifically I think it just I was already on that I already had that mindset and it just reaffirmed to me what I what I thought yeah and with all of your surgeries how many have, have you had a lot maybe like it depends right depends like if you're counting like the different things I do under one anesthetic but maybe Maybe 60, 50. Wow. So for somebody who is um, going into their their first surgery or supporting someone else to go into surgery, um, you're like Australia's expert on on being being operated on. Um, What what are some things that bits of advice you would give to somebody going into surgery for the first time? Yeah, so if, if one of your listeners is going into surgery for the first time, um, just to look after yourself coming up to the surgery, so making sure you're eating well, moving your body, getting enough sleep, do all those basics. Try not to introduce additional stress into your life. I think after you've had the surgery, be really gentle with yourself. Like, Don't expect yourself to be doing backflips the next day. Um, recovering from surgeries takes time. Let your friends and family know that you're having a surgery and that you know you might be 
a little bit under, under the weather for the next couple of days. Um, if you feel up to it, have visitors. But if you feel like having visitors is going to be draining for you or that you'll have to entertain or, or put on a happy face for those visitors, don't feel obliged to have people coming to visit you. Um, feel really empowered to send a text, say, hey guys, I'm not feeling up to a visitor today. Maybe we can reschedule. Um, a good friend would understand that. And I think if you're supporting someone who's about to have a surgery, um, you know, try and make lots of nourishing meals for them, encourage them to sleep, relax, um, uh, make sure that they've got a Netflix subscription and, and maybe a stand subscription too as well. Offer to sit with them to watch some, some funny content online. Um, and, and be really specific if you're asking them if they need anything done. So rather than sending them a text saying, hey, let me know if you need any help. You could say, hey, I'm going to the shops. I'm going to get some toilet paper. I'll drop it around the Savo at around four. Or you could send them a text saying, I've made those really yummy chocolate brownies. Um, I'm driving past yours now. I'll drop them off. If you're around, great. But if not, totally understand. Um, kiss, hug, kiss, hug. So I think just those tips could be some good ways to not only help yourself to prepare for a surgery, but also be there for someone else who's going through the same thing. Yeah, I think that importance of specificity can't be underrated. Um, in, in our book Reconnected, Nick Terrell and I talked about this uh, terrific app called Gather My Crew, uh, which was set up to allow someone who is going through a tough time to post a list of tasks that they need done, whether that's mowing the lawn or walking the dog, uh, and then friends can sign up to do those particular tasks. And it just, it takes away from that, that notion that you, do, you mentioned in the book where someone says, what can I do to help? And the person who's going through a hard time doesn't feel as though they can, they can really ask for what they need. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And what about for somebody who is going through a hard time which is uh, more emotional? Uh, how, what, what tips do you have for someone who's uh, counselling a friend in, uh, in, in, a, in a time like that? Yeah, I think probably similar sort of tips, right? Send them a text, let them know that you're thinking of them, that you're there for them. And don't stop at that, you know, drop around some food to their house, send them a really cute card, um, offer to, to go for a walk with them or to walk their dog for them or like what you said, Andrew, like being really specific about the things that you're able to help with. Um, I think that can be really useful. And if you're going through a hard time now, um, I would strongly encourage people to see a psychologist or a counsellor. I know mine was so amazing during my recovery. I, uh, I think it's really sad that there's such a massive stigma associated with um, seeing a psychologist, but I like to think of it as, you know, hopefully you'd go to a beautician to get your eyebrows waxed or you'd go to a hairdresser to get your hair cut and I think our heart and head deserve no less than the very best professional help that we can get. And uh, you're, uh, you're pretty firm in the book about uh, the uh, suggestion of saying to people, it's going to be okay. Yeah, well, I, I've always hated that suggestion um, because the person saying it doesn't, doesn't know the outcome. And so I think if you're, you know, if you've just received a cancer diagnosis and one of your acquaintances says everything's going to be okay, 
that would be a very frustrating thing for you to hear. So I think rather than saying everything's going to be okay, you can just say, I don't know what to say, but I'm here for you. I think that's probably potentially a more apt thing to say. And in your case, the the physical injuries are, are, are massive. So you've, uh, I mean, we've we've talked about the burns, but also losing finger fingers on one on one hand, um, and you know, the amazing work by your by your surgeons. But the injuries are still immediately apparent to anybody that sees you. Um, what's that? What's that like to to walk out in the street and have people that don't know you kind of turn their turn their heads? Yeah, I mean, a couple of different things go through through my mind. I don't know if people do immediately turn my heads after I've walked past them. I know that kids are probably quite curious about what's happened to me. I know when I pick up my son from preschool, they're always quite curious. And so I'll just try and answer as honestly as I can. So if they say, what happened to your skin? I'll say, well, I got burnt during a fire. I guess I don't try and sugarcoat it. Um, if I do notice someone staring at me, I try and make eye contact with them and say, hey mate, how you going? How's your day been? What's been happening? And I find that that can potentially disarm them sometimes. And I would encourage people, um, to try and have conversations with your family and with your kids about people who look a bit different or, or who have a, um, a visible difference um, or potentially even a disability, try and just encourage them to say, you know, everyone's, we, we're all different. We all come in different packages, right? And how do you, how do you start those conversations with your, uh, with your kids? Yeah, I mean, with my kids, it's quite easy, right? Because I'll say to my sons, you know, like how many hands, um, how many fingers do I have on this hand? oh, you've got three, that sort of thing. I think maybe if you're watching TV and maybe someone like me is on the news or getting interviewed by someone, you could say, oh, we'll see that lady, she's been burnt, she's been in a fire, but she's a really amazing human. Just having those kinds of conversations, I think as well it would depend on how old your kids are as well. I think that's how I speak to my kids because they're quite young, but that would probably change as they get older. You uh, you wrote a lovely blog post the other day talking about your uh, entering a Miss Earth beauty pageant uh, wearing, wearing bikinis to uh, to, to uh, talk about the environment uh, when you're uh, when you're a teenager. Um, but do you do you look now at the way in which society regards beauty and and see a sort of shallowness in that? I think the industry has come a long way. You know, like the Women's Weekly put me on their front cover. I think maybe it's seven years ago now and I felt really, uh, I guess, proud to play my part in shifting, mm. in shifting people's perspective on, on what a cover girl looks like. So I'm really proud to have played my role and I think that's part of the reason why I am so active in the media is because I want to, I want to be a visible, a visible person out there living a really good life and be a visible demonstration of someone that looks a bit different to other people. So I think the industry has come a long way. I think Instagram and social media, um, it can be negative in that you can follow people who conform to that narrow 
ideal of beauty but at the same token there's so many different people on social media there's so many different people on TikTok and on Instagram that you realize that people come in all different shapes and sizes and colors and packages and heights um, it, I think for me social media has made me realize how diverse we are and your your main social platform as best I can tell is is Instagram and uh, if I look at your books um, happy and other ridiculous aspirations you're on the cover unmasked you're on the cover everything to live for you're on the cover and the only one of your four books where you're not on the cover is good selfie uh, so you you haven't held back from uh, doing your part to reshape that notion of, of what society thinks of as uh, as beautiful mm, and also they're my books so I, uh, I am allowed to be on the cover well, that's true, but you know, I've I've written a bunch of books, and I've ne never once thought about putting my face on the cover, and so it's uh, uh, I I think it it demonstrates a sense of confidence that others could learn a lot from, particularly teenagers, who I, I mean I know as the uh, uh, dad of a teenage boy, uh, just the angst that he and his friends go through over uh, their looks, you know, even even just worrying about pimples can uh, can ruin a day. Oh. How do you uh, manage to to maintain that sense of um, positive uh, of of not comparing yourself with others? It's one of the uh, one, one of the themes you discuss in the book. Yeah, um, because I, mean, I think as uh, one of the things that's often driven through social media is the idea that we ought to look at where we are not in absolute terms but in relative terms. Uh, how do you uh, get around that yourself? Yeah, I think. One of the things I do is try and be really conscious about the people I'm following on social media. So I think if I'm following people and they make me feel less than or that my life isn't worthy, then I'll follow, then I'll try and diversify my feed and follow, follow different types of people. I think that's one way. I think another way to stop that incessant stream of comparison is to try and practice gratitude for your own life and be grateful for the people and the opportunities and all the cool things you get to do in your own life. I think that's another really great way to just halt comparison in its tracks. But I also think just acknowledging it, right? Because I think all of us compare ourselves to everyone else at some point or another in our lives. It's, it's a very human trait. But I think it's important to remember that when we're comparing our lives to someone else's, we don't know what they've invested their time and money and energy and all of those finite resources into. We don't know what they've invested them into. So I think it's like, you know, it's like comparing yourself to a dolphin when a dolphin can swim and you can't. It, it, it doesn't make a whole heaps of sense. Don't compare yourself to a dolphin. I think that's a, a, a life maxim we can all live by. Uh, I'm really curious on your... Um, career too. You were a mining engineer before the accident. Um, since then you've uh, moved into this space of motivational speaking, uh, digital coaching. Uh, you've coached over 40,000 40, people through your, uh, your online courses, now the run training. Uh, what do you see as, as being, being next in your career? I'm not, I'm not quite sure, to be honest. I really, I really love what I do. I love empowering people and, and helping people. I like making cool stuff that people seem to enjoy and, and helps them to be that little bit happier in their own lives. Uh, I really love writing and, and creating things. So hopefully just more of what I've been doing. 
Let me wrap up by asking you a couple of questions that I ask all of my interviewees. Um, what advice would you give to your teenage self? It would be to whatever it is that you're that you're trying to lean away or that you that you don't want to amplify what what makes you different. I think that's going to be what's going to make you incredible when you're older. What was it for you that uh, that made you a little different as a teenager? I think I was quite stubborn, tenacious, argumentative, all of those qualities um, that potentially I was a little bit ashamed of as a kid. But I think through my recovery and as I've gotten older, they really helped me to steer my life into a really great direction. I imagine stubbornness and tenacity are, are pretty central to uh, the sort of uh, work that you and your surgeons would ne would have needed to do after the accident. <laughs> yeah. uh, what's something you used to believe but no longer do? Oh, I mean, heaps of things, right? Like when you're a kid, you believe in all sorts of different things. I think as a kid, I used to really believe in ghosts and I'd like to say I don't believe in them anymore, but like maybe at three o'clock in the morning if I was in a haunted house, I would probably be scared of ghosts, even though I don't really believe that they exist. Do you uh, do you find yourself fearful at three o'clock in the morning? I, I don't don't imagine you as the kind of person that uh, that's ever fearful. No, but imagine you're at a haunted house. Someone's dropped you off there, right? <laughs> and it's three p.m. in the Arvo. Then the sun slowly sets, and you're thinking, "I'm going to be at this haunted house all by myself tonight." And you just hear like creaks and the house groaning and door slamming like it, it would be unsettling and scary so terrifying that's actually. certainly certainly true of me and every other mortal but i just kind of imagine uh you've got a layer over the top your turia pit and you uh, you've gone through uh a an accident in which 65 percent of your body has been burned you've competed kona with external co cooling pouring water over yourself all the way uh you've given birth to two gorgeous little boys I don't imagine I'd be scared at all in your shoes. So it's maybe it's a bit of a relief to discover that uh, that even you get scared sometimes. <laughs> I am a massive scaredy cat, Andrew. I'm scared <laughs> of a lot of things. Uh, when are you most happy? When I'm with my family or running. Uh, have you ever tried combining the two? Running with my kids on my back. Yeah. No, but do you I'm do, uh, do, do, you do jog jogging strollers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think like that's what I talk about in my running program as well. Like running is one of the very few activities that you can do with your kids. So I'll put them in the pram now. Uh, but hopefully when they're older, they'll want to come for a run with me. But I also don't have a high expectation that that would happen. You can always just make them go for a run with you too. Uh, this is, uh, you know, I feel like I'm putting Rob DeCostello in this podcast the, the entire time, but uh, uh, Rob got his start in running because his dad was told by his doctor that he needed to run every day uh, and so uh, said, Rob, you're the oldest son, you're, uh, you're coming running with me every day. Uh, but for that, Rob DeCostello would never have become a runner. Wow, so that's maybe pretty cool. Can, uh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, exactly. Maybe, maybe, maybe you can get your kids out on that basis. Um, I, I've told that story to my, uh, my boys, but I, I've never gone the additional step and actually uh, <laughs> for, force, force them to run with me. Um, what's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? I think the most important thing in my life is my relationship with my partner. I think it's really easy to neglect to neglect the relationship with your significant other and everything else in your life to take priority and in your relationship to take a back seat. So I think 
I guess the most important thing I do is try and try and put some energy and some commitment and some time into that and some, and some love into that. You talk in your new book about the importance of making time for fun. Uh, I guess fun, fun for you and uh, uh, would be prioritising, Michael. Yes, well, there's lots of different types of fun, Andrew. Yeah, but uh, you know, we've we've certainly found that date nights are uh, pretty essential to uh, having a, having a healthy marriage uh, when you've got three boys. Um, occasionally, when my kids complain about uh, date nights, I'll say to them, "Well." You know, statistically, probably the best thing I can do for you and your brothers is to to uh, stay stay together with your mum, and so therefore you should be strongly supportive of me going away from <laughs> you for a night to uh, spend time with Gwyneth. I'm loving all these strategies I'm getting from you. They're awesome. <laughs> do you have any guilty pleasures? Uh, I don't think they're really guilty. I love, I love, I love junk food, like donuts, What's your chocolate, favorite junk food? like. Um, yeah, I love junk food and I eat it when I feel like it, but I don't think it's guiltily. And I also like red wine. So I drink that if I feel like it too. So you must love carb loading before a race. Yeah, I do. I, I enjoy that aspect of it. But it's, it's, it's weird, right? Because when you can eat all the carbs you want, you find that you get full really quickly. Do you find that? Oh, I hate carb loading. Yeah, it's oh, okay. basically you hate it. Okay. I, I norm I normally have pretty little, relatively little sugar in the diet, and then the ideal carb loading is basically you go shopping like you're shopping for a kid's birthday party, and then you eat it all yourself. Yeah, um, that's, so that's it's amazing. not it's not I my idea of fun. <laughs> right. Okay. I'm delighted you 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 enjoy it. Um, and finally, Taria, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Ah. Uh... I don't know about the word ethical. Like, it makes me question whether or not I'm an ethical person, which, like... Wait, we haven't even talked about all your philanthropic work, right? You've you've raised money yeah. for uh, uh, Research International. You did this amazing initiative for the South Coast fires to get people to shop local. You're, you're an extraordinary inspiration in terms of giving back to the community. I can't believe you'd balk at the term ethical. Well, I don't know. It just sounds very serious and straight-laced. I don't know. I, I guess I don't – maybe I just have a problem with that with that word. Okay. I, I just feel like let's, if I – Let's put to one side the, uh, the, the notion that, the, that you can't be ethical because I don't believe that for a moment. No, 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 no. no. It's just – amazing philanthropist and inspiring person. <laughs> All right, I win the ethics award then. How about that? I win the ethics award. <laughs> you win award. the ethics award. So now the question is, which person or experience has most shaped you uh, in, in winning it? Who's in your acceptance speech for the ethics award? I think my partner, again, my partner Michael, I think he has made me a better person. Um, he has been there for me. Um and I feel like when I'm with him, I am the best version of myself. So I feel like Michael would get a massive shout out in my acceptance speech. <laughs> That's a beautiful way to end. Uh, Tori Pitt, thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Craig Foster, 
Kurt Fernley and Heather Garriak. We appreciate getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. It really helps others get in touch. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.